Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Theo Wilson. Theo delivered a viral TED Talk entitled A Black Man Goes Undercover in the Alt-Right. His talk details his experience creating a white supremacist online avatar and diving into the depths of the alt-right movement. Along the way, he came to some shocking realizations about how racism is perpetuated. Theo Wilson is a jack of all trades. He's a poet, activist, and executive director of Shop Talk Live, which is an organization that uses the barbershop as a staging ground for community dialogue and healing. In our conversation today, Theo delivers a powerful and deeply moving poem about a childhood friend who was lost due to an incident of police brutality. He recounts his own personal experience with police brutality and the deep impact it had on him and his sense of self-worth, and how he still struggles with that at times today. Theo brings clarity to what it feels like in the chaos of what's going on in the world. He takes us deep to the individual level to help us understand what's going on in our own minds, hearts, and souls and how we're all interconnected. And in that, we can truly see that none of us are free until we're all free. We hope you'll share this episode far and wide and start your own version of Shop Talk Conversations face-to-face with people who you don't agree with in order to have the conversations that need to be had in order to better understand each other. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide and kindly leave a review. So, without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Theo Wilson. Theo Wilson, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? Doing good. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Theo, the reason why I wanted to speak to you is because your pedigree is just so diverse. And I think the best way to kind of start this conversation is simply asking you, how do you describe what you do? I try to share as much light as I can through any way available to me. And I guess I was gifted artistically in many ways, from drawing, spoken word, musically, and the ability to publicly speak in a compelling way that allowed better messages to come through than I suppose what we're used to. And what I mean better by better is things that have, I suppose, more light in them, more meat and potatoes, more applicable, unifying content. And that's what I try to share. And that's literally all I've ever done. And I figured you can't under you can't change the world that you don't understand. So my job was to try to understand the world and to share what I saw worked to make it better. Great. Now let's unpack that really quickly. How did you go about trying to understand the world? Like how does one even begin to be able to do that? Well, you got to figure out what are the mechanisms at play that are causing the effects in the world that you don't like and figure out if you can trace them to the root and uproot the problem. And no matter what it is, whether it is systems of exploitation, environmental pollution, racism, they all begin and end with people. Mm-hmm. We are the ones who create these machines out of our consciousness and collectively like a multiplayer video game, we all contribute to it and sometimes passively. But it makes sense to figure out what goes on inside of human beings to lead to the toxicity and the destruction and see if you can, number one, find them in yourselves and number two, change it in yourself. And three, if you find anything useful, share it with somebody. 
that's how I've mm-hmm. gone about trying to understand and change the world. Given the current moment of what's happening in the world, right? Like in terms of understanding it, how do you kind of think about what's happening in this current moment? Well, what I think is that events follow laws. And the way that you can predict the events in the future is to look at the past, to look at history. And what you'll see is that the pendulum swings one direction and then it'll swing in another direction. And when the pendulum swings, there's this arc that leads towards a greater collective understanding of our common humanity. Dr. King said the arc of God is long, but it bends towards justice. And what he was talking about is that if you trace how many people have died in wars over the last 100 years, 150 years, per 100,000, they're actually getting smaller. If you trace what we have instituted in our society that looks like justice, not only for people of color, but for children and LGBTQ, there's these things that happen where those who don't want it will have their way for a while, and those who want it will eventually have their way because there's this greater humanistic element. And I knew that in time, the greater society was going to have to reckon with our tacit agreement that the police, for example, have the right to kill and go outside of boundaries. And because they haven't done the necessary homework to uproot hateful actors, then those hateful actors are going to act hatefully. And eventually, because the technology was going to get caught on film, and eventually there'd be an outcry. Like, it's just a matter of time. It's like chaos mathematics. It looks like there's no order, rhyme, or reason to it, but eventually you'll see that there always was. And that's what's going on. The pendulum is swinging back towards justice, and we need to listen to it. Yeah, I really appreciate that nuanced response. Now, as you talk about the pendulum swinging back and you know being on the side of justice, how is this moment in your mind different than previous moments? It is riding off the momentum of what we saw between 2012 and 2016 because you have the same people. We're, you know, we're still young people. We, we definitely have fresh memories of this. And we can see the pattern now. Like if we've marched and protested and nothing changed, then that means that we know that marching and protesting is not enough. And so you have this call to defund the police, deconstruct these police departments and to really call into question the idea that serve and protect is what is actually being done. Because now you have all of this evidence to contradict this basic societal assumption. And therefore, they're going to take another step further, another step further try to see if we haven't done anything before. Seems like the universe loves novelty. What haven't we tried before? What hasn't been applied? And now we're trying to figure out new territory so that we can make some new mistakes and not keep making the old ones. Now, what I'd like to do with this moment here, Theo, is kind of unpack your experience in terms of your direct experience with the police. Would you be comfortable sharing your your story of your own experience with the police and in particular, any police brutality that you may have experienced. What was so interesting about my case is that there were so many other young black men my age who had gone through it. It didn't feel like I had much to talk about. There's guys who got it worse than me. It was almost like I underwent a rite of passage. I was outside of a, I was inside of a nightclub with a good friend of mine 
just dancing, you know, it's a hip hop nightclub and a fight ends up breaking out when the security guards gets beat up real bad, putting the whole security on staff, the security staff on edge. We're talking about police and the actual guards there. And um, the melee ensued, you know, sometimes in a club like that, there could be gunshots. You never know what's going to happen after a fight. So we spread out, we left the club and I lost my friend and I was just looking for him. And I rounded the corner and saw a cop who was literally pushing this group of girls off the corner and she turned around. I'll never forget. She was like, we're ladies for God's sakes. What are you doing? And uh, so this dude was clearly amped up and I was just looking for my friend Dave. And before I knew it, I didn't realize, I think I was the only one standing still in the melee. That's the only reason why I think that the cop could have focused in on me. And he's like, get the hell home. And I'm like, I'm trying to go home. I'm looking for my friend, man. Leave me alone. Right. He didn't like the way I talked to him. And so he ran up. And uh, tried to chicken wing my arm behind my back, which I ended up breaking out of. Uh, I'm a martial artist and I, I broke out of the chicken wing hole and he was just shocked. And at that moment, he just shoved me, like pushed me harder than I've ever been pushed before or since. Off of the sidewalk and into the street, had there been a car coming, I literally would have got hit at that moment. And um, like a genius, I threw my sunglasses in his face. Now, this will come into play later on. But um, I escalated the situation at that point. And the, the guy literally punched, like literally threw a punch. Like this is not on Law & Order SVU. This is no protocol you've ever seen on the cops. I, he, he threw a punch and I ducked it. And I saw the moment to counter punch. And all of a sudden there was just all these literal images of like struggle and oppression, you know, Mississippi burning and crosses and all this stuff and the LA riots. Like they flashed in my head at that moment just long enough to distract me to uh, for him to knock me to the ground. And uh, I looked I looked up, I remember looking up at the night and there was these four cops now, they appeared out of nowhere, grabbed me up and it was roughing me up. And I started screaming police brutality, police brutality, and I started screaming it. And they kind of panicked a little bit, and began to push me through the crowd. And there was a door on the side of the nightclub with a staircase. And uh, they pushed me up these stairs, dude. And I just remember like, oh, wow. They just took me out of public view, man. And I don't know what's going to happen here. And um, I got handcuffed to a chair and I was just getting beat, bro. Just punched me in my ribs, slapped me in my face. And it's like, you want to throw your sunglasses in my face? You think you're tough, all this stuff. And I uh, just cried and whatnot. And I pretty much thought I was going to die. And um, after he was done, he was like, you don't know my name. You don't know my badge number. If I see you again tonight, you're going to jail. I was like, well, whatever, bro. I just want to get out of here. So he uncuffed me from the uh, chair and literally threw me down that flight of stairs. And as I went out the door, there was a newspaper stand. This was the weekend of the New York blackouts. And the headline literally read powerless. Literally read powerless, like as if, as, as if I was getting an unmistakable sign from above. My current predicament was powerless and I just never forgot it. And, it, 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 you know, I, I had what I didn't realize was PTSD, you know, um, and before I knew it, I began to use poetry as a way to express myself and tell the truth and heal myself and hopefully heal other people, you know. Theo, how does, how does that experience or how did that experience kind of change and transform the way you saw yourself and quite literally how you saw yourself in the midst of, you know, the society in which you live. Like, how did it kind of change your place in the world? Well, I always knew I was black, you know, so let me get that out the way. But 
what was interesting was it if, the effect it had on my masculinity. I remember feeling neutered. I felt like I wasn't a man anymore to the point where the next time uh, it was time for me to actually have sex, uh, you know, I had to disappoint this young lady with erectile dysfunction. I'm 22 years old. Well, what, what am I doing with ED? You know what I mean? And it was because I, I just couldn't get the idea out of my head that I was less than deserving to share my body with this woman because I wasn't a, quote, man, you know? Uh, I remember that was one of the major things. Um, and it just put me on game that I was lucky. I was lucky. Like, my mama didn't have to bury me. You see what I'm saying? So many other brothers, and even we, we, we knew back in the day, you know, because the major death that was on everybody's mind at that time was Tim Thomas out of Cincinnati and Amadou Diallo, you know. But I, I know that these were in the consciousness of black people, you know, and it was right before the era of cell phones, on uh, cell phone cameras, you know. So it was just a painful event, but it let me know about vulnerability and there was no guarantees for me. There's no guarantees. Like no matter what I accomplished, no, no, no matter, you know, I was, I had just graduated college, first man in my bloodline, you know, to, to graduate college. That didn't matter. You know, my, my grandfather is a Tuskegee Airman among the first black men to fly. That did not matter. You see what I'm saying? You know, I'm the grandson of a legitimate American hero and had that cop made another decision that wouldn't have stopped him from killing me. Have you since been able to overcome that sense of feeling like you weren't enough or that you weren't um, seen or visible to others and the way that you want to be seen and visible to others? Well, to a certain extent, you know, when you begin to get the influence and the attention that I have over the last few years, some of that dissipates, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a feeling of protection. I'm well aware that I'm not like Denzel Washington famous, you feel me? And even if I was, all it takes is one guy who doesn't know you to pull you over and all that goes out the window. And I've seen other black folks who made some level of success fool themselves into thinking that they were exempt from the black experience. I don't let that happen to me. I'm, I, I'm always aware that no matter what this looks like for me in terms of my fame or exposure, which is all relative, by the way, I'm still a black man in America and I got to do. Hearing your voice and hearing you talk about it in the way of, I mean, even with your influence right now and not feeling as though you're necessarily protected, I hope that's a wake-up call for people that are listening because, I mean, Theo, you've been in the spotlight for a while. And so even with all of that going for you, what I'm hearing you say is you still have this sense of feeling as though you're vulnerable when you're out, when you're out and about. And the moment you step outside your door, there's always this underlying undercurrent that you have to be cognizant of. Is that accurate? You know, since the killings of Botham Jean and Tatiana Jefferson, like it, that really resonate that you may not even be safe inside your house. You feel me? It's a vicarious trauma, brother. It's a traumatization through other folks who look like you and have your story. That is one of the things that is being created through this time that's galvanizing these moments. When you see George Floyd getting killed by this officer, for a second, you're George Floyd. You know what I mean? Especially if you have a cellular memory of what it's like to be held down 
and restrained by a police officer, likely because of the color of your skin. See what I mean? Like that's a different thing altogether. So the the re-traumatization is a thing that I always deal with as, as, as well. And, you know, like the gangsters say, like, you know, you know, just don't get caught slipping. You can't get caught slipping. Like you, you, you got to be on your A game at all times because no, like even still with all this success in certain areas, there are no guarantees. Now, you know, I think at this point, it's kind of inevitable for people to not appreciate and understand the ability in which you're able to kind of craft and utilize the English language. It's directly related to the fact that you write poetry and you're expressive with your language. And so what I'd like to do at this point right now, Theo, is kind of talk about how you used poetry and language to kind of not only better understand the world in your own words, but how you find that sense of creativity and what poetry arises in you. And then if possible, I'd love for you to kind of read a poem to kind of best capture this moment for you. So I had always written in journals, but a friend of mine, Jay English, he's a rapper and I, I started rapping with him. He was a master of the punchline. Jay English was a master of hyperbole and double entendre. And so I began to rap with him and his group First Ave and learn a little bit about how to create these rhymes. Now, this was before I got beat up by the police. After I got beat up by the police, this skill set of creating hyperbole and metaphor and double entendre manifested in a way to excavate my feelings and put them on paper and make sure that whoever heard it or whoever read it felt the exact muse that I was inspired with. My goal as an artist is to leave people pregnant with the muse that was inside of me, right? My starting place is the ending place of the poem. Now I've got to map where my audience is emotionally, culturally, socially, and build a bridge with my words to that muse. And when I'm able to do that, it's a godlike feeling. It made me feel like I had some kind of power. That's great. Now, as you're kind of writing poetry, like, what does that arise in you as, a, as an artist? You know, it's funny because feelings have colors. They move in a certain way. When I was in front of a blank page, and especially in a competitive sense, you know, when you were doing this, elevating your own game, digging deeper into a metaphor, unpacking all of its possible meanings and figuring out where to place them, I felt like Tony Stark crafting the Iron Man suit. I felt like I could manufacture at will these light weapons, these things that penetrated past people's conditionings and right into their heart and could make a difference if somebody listened. And it was all out of me, my mind, my creativity, my experience, and my imagination. That is a very empowering thing. And so I took to it with the same degree of power that I felt disempowered in society. The very same degree in which I felt vulnerable, my poetry made me feel invulnerable. And in that there's power, and in that there's influence, and in that there's a way of kind of leaving your legacy for those to come after. You know, I feel like this is a great place here, Theo, for you to kind of read a poem for us, tell us what it is and give us the backstory, and then we could, we could take it from there. I'll give the backstory after the poem. I like the poem to speak for itself. 
Alonzo's birthday was the day before mine, so to make us feel special, our moms made us share a cake. He was the kid who always used his fingers for forks and the frosting for Spider-Man face paint. But these days, forks are no challenge, but birthdays are kind of hard for Alonzo. He hasn't had one since 2011, courtesy of Denver police, who snuffed the candles in his lungs with a taser shock for every year of his life that he breathed. They said his strength was superhuman, like Spider-Man. An altercation with the zoo renter cop got out of hand. They treated the animals there more humanely. This black man taking his last breath yards away from African creatures in cages. And I know that there's a metaphor in there somewhere, but all I remember was his name on the news. Wondering why some disturbance in the force hadn't warned me. Wondering if the sound waves played tricks on the air. Wondering if he indeed just walked through heaven's gates. While I was the one greeting him there. See, eight years before, the police handcuffed me to a chair and beat me like I stole the tax dollars. I already paid them my parents' investments in me in their crosshairs. Every gas smile, every meal, every storybook lesson rests in the hands of Uncle Sam's new slave patrol weapons. But when the beast spit you out alive, bathed in the sweat from the moments you thought were the last before you died, who teaches you how to deal with regretting survival when a shame at a second chance has you nearly suicidal? Alonzo, it should have been you writing this poem. Instead, I speak the ballad of another dead soldier. In this war, we never asked for oldest history's pages. You and I, African creatures, born into uniform, doing life in invisible cages. This is the ballad of another dead soldier. When the bullets kept going like their families had to, and ricocheting off the tombstones, I keep his taste buds in the graveyard that sings in my mouth like I can somehow speak their alternate futures into this one. Like somewhere magically right now, Trayvon Martin is a model. All six foot three of us now chiseled frames standing tall like the pride of his mama. Beard game on a hundred like his daddy's. Clean like Zimmerman's hands had he just followed directions. And somewhere right now, Oscar Grant is an actor alongside Michael B. Jordan. Never knowing that he's staring at his movie reflection in Fruitvale Station is just another train stop. And somewhere right now, Eric Garner's lungs never pause for a moment of silence. His heart never called in black between the beats. Instead, he screamed, I can't breathe from laughter that Christmas when his daughter got licorice stuck in her teeth. In summer right now, Sandra Bland just finished her first nonprofit grant. She and her fiance expect a child this November, all because a cop swallowed his pride in a Texas traffic stop in an incident that he barely remembers. These are the lives and black lives matter. The haters never hear past the black, just get triggered from being awakened from their raceless slumbers, content with real destinies reduced to faceless numbers. And somewhere right now, Alonzo Ashley made it out of that zoo. And tragically, I made it onto the news. And this poem was never written, and you are not in these seats, just a candlelight vigil held at my tomb. But for reasons I cannot name, I survived. Here to eulogize the fallen, and I must go on coping with the guilt of being alive. Won't you join me in singing their songs? Our voices ringing out like the Battle of Jericho. Until the blue wall of silence falls. Until the blue wall of silence falls. Until the blue wall of silence falls. That was called Alonzo. Oh, Theo, that was superb. That was superb. How do you feel? Oh, I always start to stop from crying when I read it, you know. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, for, for those that are listening, um, it's important to note that uh, Theo 
uh, recited that poem from memory. So, so could you tell us, Theo, what's the backstory about that poem, man? So literally back in 2011, the same summer I won National Poetry Slam, I turned on the news at my parents' house and I just see Alonzo Ashley, Denver man killed at the zoo, right? And I'm like, nah, because we know when Alonzo Ashley and they didn't show his picture yet, you feel me? Like, I was like, nah, it ain't like Alonzo Ashley, Alonzo, Alonzo Ashley, right? Can't be. And then I turned the channel and they was talking about the same thing and it was him, yo. It was him. Like, and they show, and, 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 and like, I hadn't seen Lonzo in a few years, man. Like, not since we was kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, my, like, our moms kept in touch with each other. We sent Christmas cards back and forth, but I never seen the Christmas cards they sent us. So, but I just remember, like, there he is. There he is. You know what I'm saying? And I just remember the summers when we were kids. See, Lonzo got a brother named Lindell. And our birthdays are three consecutive days. So it's Lindell is June 9th, Alonzo's is June 10th, and mine was June 11th. So there's this gap between me and Lindell's birthday that's just not there. And like what I said in the beginning of the poem, like it was just like we, we, we shared a cake. It was just we all had a cake and it was happy birthday to everybody. You see what I'm saying? Man, it was just, it was just crazy. It's like there's this hole in my childhood. When they killed Alonzo, they left a hole in my childhood. And I just remember the narratives about him as if he didn't have these childhood memories that I got with him, right? When you talk about these black men who are killed by police, they become these one-dimensional characters sometimes. They become these tragic faces that people argue, well, he was a thug, no, he was a real man. And I'm like, no, like he used to use his fingers and he used to paint, you feel me? Like there's this dimension of it. Like I remember when we was kids, like these pointy birthday hats, the little cones with the string on the bottom, you know, that had Mickey Mouse on them and stuff. That's my memory of them. And I couldn't tell nobody that. So when I did the TED talk, I was like, yo, I'm gonna carry you with me, bruh. If I go to the top, like if, if this TED talk goes to the top, you coming with me, man. You know what I'm saying? And it was like, it was like that. It did it, did it. And then it did it. Like the TED Talk went viral. You know what I'm saying? Like it's got seven and a half million views on the TED Facebook page, four million on the TED website, and another two million on different places on YouTube. You're not going to watch that talk without hearing my man's name. Yeah. It just goes to show that he does carry on, right? He just, he lives on. He lives on with you and with us. Theo, what I'd love to do is if, um, if you're up for it, I'd love to kind of, uh, since you brought up, I'd love to talk about how I kind of discovered your work here. And uh, I came across your work through, through TED as well. And uh, specifically, man, I'd love to have you talk about your TED talk entitled A Black Man Goes Undercover in the Alt-Right. I'd love for you to kind of talk about that experience, how you got yourself into that place, what you learned, and what people, uh, what the alt-right learned from you. It all began when I went viral for my own cell phone videos back in 2015. I made a video about reparations for Black people. That was the first one that ever hit. And in the first minute of the video, I acted like I was against reparations. 
And the last nine minutes, a 10 minute video, and the last nine minutes, I'm breaking it down. I had discovered the work of Ta-Nehisi Coates, specifically his yeah. article, The Case for Reparations, which was in the Atlantic at that time. And it was just this beautifully written, but very thick piece of literature. And I was like, the hood needs to understand this. Like, I talk like them. You know, one of the things I stopped doing, by the way, is like code switching. A lot of times, brothers like me have the ability, if, if we are well-spoken, to completely lose any semblance of blackness in our voice. And I just stopped doing that, right? And, and around that time was the, the, the era when I made the choice to stop doing that. And I said, I'm going to just spit this out here the way that I feel it and just give the data. And when I did it, the video went viral and I grew my platform and more and more people started coming to my page. And then these other Facebook luminaries, like there was these cats who I had seen on Facebook who were like killing it. And they started coming to my page and talking to me. And it was like, yo, whatever you do, like stay out of your comment section. And it, it, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, yo, I, I, I went to my comment section a few times, but like now it made me more curious about my comment section. And when I went in there, there was these trolls, bro. And they were trolling me with these racist, you know, tropes and memes and whatnot. And my, my first reaction was to be really aggressive back with them, like saying things that I ain't proud of, you know? Like I tried to like go delete some of that stuff when people started booking me at schools because I didn't want an administrator to find it, you know? But like, it was a waste of my time. I would argue with folks and it felt like they was coming from a different universe, right? And so, Around that time, the, the executive director of Shop Talk Live was a guy named Quincy Hines who worked at a, a marketing firm. And he told me about target market algorithms and how we are in bubbles. We're not seeing the world the way that it is. The internet is lying to us. It's lying to us to sell to us. And it's not just products, it's news. And so when he told me about that, I had noticed that some of my trolls did not have real profiles. I didn't know that you could do that. When I joined Facebook, you know, MySpace was the place where you could put the fake name, but it just seemed like you had to give your real name on Facebook. It seemed like, like they didn't play that fake name stuff. So I didn't know that you could actually create a fake profile. And around that time, there was something circulating about like white trolls on Twitter performing as if they were black people. And I was just like, I think two can play at that game. And I didn't see myself as any more significant than any of those white trolls who set up accounts on black Twitter. I didn't see myself as any different than, than them. You know, I just wanted to see how big the echo chamber was. Now keep in mind, this was 2015 going into 2016. So Obama was still president. Trump was gathering steam, but we didn't really believe he could win. You know what I mean? And when I got the profile on the other side, I just started saying the same things that were being said to me as my avatar. That's all I did. Like, it didn't seem like it was a big deal. When I'm telling you that I'm surprised as anybody that I'm talking about this at universities, I don't believe it took more than 10 minutes to set that profile up. And most of that time was spent finding the avatar. And then the rest of it was another eight months getting feedback and just trying things out. See, here was the problem. I worked at a call center at that time. And at the call center, our firewalls would stop us from going not only to uh, Facebook sometimes. So you could get on Facebook sometimes, but it was, real, it was real iffy, just depending on, I don't know how that stuff works really, but, but you could always get on YouTube. 
Now, the firewalls will stop you from going to websites like at the time it was called Stormfront and America Renaissance and National Vanguard Alliance and whatnot, right? But they all had YouTube channels, all of them. So I was just going on their YouTube channels as my avatar, talking stuff, building it up. And now, you know, YouTube sends you notifications in your email if somebody responds to you. And I just kind of went into their world, man. And I got to see what was happening in the country. And I looked at the number of likes, thumbs ups and shares and stuff. And I said, if these guys are supporting Trump, I think he might be able to win. It was this really strong hunch that I had. I like to say I knew he was going to win, but no, it was it was more like a ominous feeling of there's a real possibility that he's going to win. You see what I'm saying? And I ended up being right about that. But I shut the project down at about eight months in because I was getting really, really toxic. It was affecting me. Number one, I'm a police brutality survivor. And when enough people gaslight about the lives of those who are killed by the police, it was taking more from me energetically than I realized. Like there was a moment when I had compassion, when I realized that there was people who were truly misled, misinformed and indoctrinated by these gaps in the historical narrative about race that folks left to their own devices in this pop culture McDonald's version of history couldn't actually come to any other conclusion, especially if they were born in parts of the country where they had no friends of color, where there was no ray or reason to find black history. It made perfect sense how folks could do that. And I had a, com a moment of compassion and I, I, I got it. What I didn't talk about in the TED talk was that it, it, it gave way to hatred. It gave way to a hatred of my own, a raw red, like evil hatred of not just like police, but a, I, I felt that white people in general, if they could get racist in the era of a black president, that if there was a thing that was happening where these memes and these ideas could resurge, that black people were not safe around them. You see what I'm saying? Like, we're just not safe around them. And that almost destroyed me. I lost a relationship because of that. I was surrounded at my job by the nicest white people ever. <laughs> like the literal nicest possible white people. I had a boss who deeply cared about what I was experiencing. You know, his name was Spencer Cameron. Spencer Cameron deeply cared about me as a human being, knew that I was troubled about this stuff. And so did a lot of other folks in my office. And I was just like, I can't reconcile these two right right now. I, I, I can't reconcile this. But if I'm not careful, I'm going to lash out at them. And not only am I going to lose friends, I'm going to lose my damn job. I got to get off this. See what I'm saying? So that's actually the other side of what happened. And it took a little bit of therapy to get right again. So that's interesting. So, so help us understand the time span of this whole thing from when you started going into these online chat groups, understanding what these hate groups were about, what the alt-right was about, that having an impact on you, that manifesting into your own life, then you carrying that sense of, for lack of a better term, that sense of ugliness about the world with you in your home and in your workplace to then 
stepping out of that space, overcoming it through therapy, through poetry. What was the whole time span like for you, Theo? What was that? Let me tell you. All right. So this was so dope, bro. It was, oh, it was such a beautiful thing. What ended up going on was I shut the experiment down maybe April of 2016, right? Around that time, I went to Tallahassee to visit the same dude I was rapping with, Jay English. He had become, he had went from literal rapper to yoga master, literal rapper to yoga master, just like that. And during my trip to Tallahassee, you know, because that's like a spiritually grounding place for me. And Jay ended up talking to me about these meditations he was doing about healing the heart and opening the heart chakra. And we was talking about it. It's like, yo, my heart chakra is damaged, bro. It's damaged. Like, I've, I've taken a trip through hatred for real. Like, you know what I'm saying? And I, I, that, that wasn't appropriate to talk about during Ted. And I realized that this shit is killing me, man. Like, it's killing me. So Jay ended up giving me these meditations that I kept falling asleep to. I kept falling asleep to these damn meditations about opening up the, 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 the freaking heart chakra. And then I'll never forget on June 1st, 2016, oh, like it just opened. It opened, like my whole heart space opened. And it just, it, it recontextualized all my experiences, all of what's going on. It taught me like the final lesson, right? about all of this. And that is that the reason why the heart is so important is because it's what we all have in common. It is the most electromagnetically powerful organ in the body. And one thing that people don't realize that the heart does is it has a brain. The Institute of Heart Math said that there's literally about, what, 10 million neurons in there that can record things, like neurons that are faster than the neurons in your head. Like, and this, this is like, this is the, the Western science approach. So, but people are like, well, think with your heart, use your heart. It's like, well, you can't think with your heart because it's a pump. No, it's got a memory. It's got a brain. And I said, I need to retune and connect this with like everything that we as a species have in common, that my best intentions was never to hate nobody. I didn't want to hate anybody. Hate hurts to give. Hate hurts to give, bro. I just wanted to live in harmony with everyone I could and meet everybody on the individual basis that they are. And that's what I was able to start. Like that reopening, it only lasted for a day, but I, I, I began to get footsteps of how to get back there. And that's what I realized was missing. Like we're in our heads. All of this stuff is head trash, man. Like racism, programming, all of the freaking indoctrination is head trash. And you will not hate without it paying a price to your own body, your own spirit, your own relationships, your own friends and family. And when I began to reopen, it, it took me a long time to get back right. But before I knew it, Ted was hitting me up about my online activism and they wanted to hear something about my experience. And uh, I was healed enough to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that backstory, Theo. Now, I really like the fact that you talk about the heart chakra and how this experience opened up your chest and essentially exposed your heart to what was real and what was good and what was actual love. 
It essentially let the light into the darkness. And so how can you fold that experience into this current moment? Like, you know, maybe it's probably a good time to ask you, what can people learn from your experience? What folks can learn is that number one, we swim in toxic waters in our media and cultural environment. That's the first step. And you can't see it because the fish don't know that it's wet. You got to know that you are inundated with psychological toxicity, cultural toxicity. That's the first thing to know. And the next thing you need to do is spend time away from it to the best of your abilities. You're going to have to turn off the like Facebook tip. You're going to have to turn off the, the television. You know, all you got is freaking race riots and COVID going on right now. And that's not good for anybody, right? And um, understand that there's a deeper level to all of this. And the reason why you're suffering is because there's a part of you that's suffocating. Like there was a part of me that was suffocated in all of this. And if I didn't reinvigorate it, I was going to become a deeper part of the problem because it was a, it was only a matter of time before I myself was radicalized by my own experience, only a matter of time. And if I wasn't careful and I just knew that I had made enough progress spiritually to know that I didn't want to go that path. But first thing you got to do was get cognizant of the fact that your mental health and actually emotional health is being drugged down by the waters you swim in and get away from it for a while. What I'm hearing you say is that it's good to critically think about these things, but it's also really good to emotionally think about these things. So what I want to do, Theo, just just to kind of wrap up this conversation is, you know, I want to ask you, what's your message for the world? Hmm. Such a big question. But what I'll say is that there is an agenda of the universe for humanity. And it looks like a reconnecting of all of the things that we have lost in these games that we play with each other. And we need to reconnect with the fact that the wisdom of a round planet cannot choose sides. We are in this together. And there are some hard choices that this moment is bringing before us. And the choices that lead to not only socially unifying, but creating systems that actually habituate justice. That's what we're being asked to do. And if we don't do it, there's a lot more pain and suffering ahead of us because we're too wise now not to follow this agenda. We know too much. It's one thing when you don't know, but human beings, you know, and your ignorance will not be like rewarded and your own inner self won't forget the fact that you know better than this. And um, the quicker that we act to not only build a social, but a systemic paradigm that mechanizes justice, not for just human beings, but also the planet, the sooner we get to some new problems, man. These old ones are whack. Theo, I just want to say, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. You know, I love the work that you do and um, just want to say thank you for sharing your story, man. No problem. I appreciate you wanting to listen to it. It's a crazy one. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by 
Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.